So this is part two of a sermon I started last week in the book of Deuteronomy. We're going through a series called The Gospel Through the Bible for only God knows how long. And um, so this, the part of the series we're going through now is called A New Nation, um, where God is making a people out of the Israelites for himself in the, uh, in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And um, one of the things that's really conspicuous in the later chapters of Deuteronomy is God's prediction of the absolute failure of the Israelites. And one of the things that I talked about last week is in parenting, um, one, of the, one of the techniques that I use that I think is actually a good one, um, and I actually learned it from, from God, was to actually tell your kids they're going to fail. Not that they are going to be failures, but in particular situations where it's extremely predictable they're going to fail because they're not going to listen to you, to actually tell them they're going to fail so that they can learn from it. I told a story about Rachel. That's my middle, that's my second child. She's holding a one-day-old alpaca. Um, the, uh, um, and a story about my tablet. She wanted to play on it. I was like, you know, you're going to take it outside. It's going to rain. And she did it anyway. She didn't listen. And then I went and got it before it rained. And then she freaked out. And then she learned that she doesn't listen. And I said that the whole reason for telling a kid that isn't to be mean. There's three reasons for it. One is you give them a chance to succeed. If it's very likely they're going to not listen and fail, when you say that, you're not really being mean. You're actually giving them a chance to say, oh, well, maybe I should listen and succeed. The second is when they fail, if they do, then you're giving them a chance to learn about themselves. Oh, I'm the kind of person that doesn't listen to good advice. And you learn something about the advice giver. In this case, me, the parent. She learned that I actually understand her better than she does. I can predict her behavior and maybe she should listen to me because she's not just Rachel defining herself from herself. She's a human being. Her behavior is predictable and I understand what a human being is better than her. And so when, and, and so you get this sort of, this sort of issue with predicting when people fail because oftentimes we're kind of pre-programmed to see that as really mean. But it depends on how you look at it. And you see this in Deuteronomy. De- Deuteronomy means second law. Deuteronomos, second law. And so there's this second generation of Israelites that are going to go into the promised land that God is going to give them. He says, listen, when you go in there, you need to live like this. And he, he tells them the story from, the, from when he saved them all the way through and all the promises that he gave their forefathers and then what was going to happen. And then he restates the law. This is what it means to be my people and for me to be your God, he says. And then he reaffirms the co- covenant. And they, he's like, okay, so you're my people and I'm your God. And this is what we're doing, and this is where you're going. And, and then he gets to the point where he says, if you reject all this stuff, all kinds of bad stuff is going to happen to you. And there's a whole chapter of curses, and then there's a, almost a whole chapter of blessings where he says, but if you listen, if you follow, if you don't fail, all these good things will happen to you, and that's what I'm pulling for, right? And then at the end of that, in chapter 31, he, he tells Moses— to write a song that everybody's supposed to learn, which I just termed it last week, the You're Gonna Fail song. And he not only says that they have to learn it, but they have to teach it to their children. And all of their children have to know about the You're Gonna Fail song. And if you, if you turn to it in, in your Bibles, um, go to chapter 32 in Deuteronomy. It's in, the, it's in poetic verse. You can just tell. It just looks different than par- standard paragraphs. It's, in my Bible, it's five pages. The You're Gonna Fail song is five pages long, right? And last week I said, you know, when you look at that, it's really easy with our capitulation to modern pop psychology to say, oh, that's so judgmental. 
Um, but, and, but, and that's one option. That's one way to look at it. The, the other way to look at it is to see that it's very pastoral. It's, it's shepherding. It's very, it's, it's actually coaching. It's, it's designed to produce success, not failure. Which means you've got to look at it as either a self-fulfilling or self-defeating prophecy, right? We, most of us know what a self-fulfilling prophecy is, particularly negatively. Like, you're going to be a failure, and so the kid feels like they can never succeed, so they become a failure. That's, that's one thing. That's different than saying, if you do this, which is predictably what you're going to do, if you don't choose to do otherwise, when you do this thing you're going to try, you're going to fail, Telling a kid they could never get through college from when they're 6 to when they're 18 is different than saying when they go off to college, listen, if you go out and drink every night, you're probably going to be living in my basement for several years and you're going to pay for college yourself the second time. Those are two different prophecies. And one is self-fulfilling. It causes the person to fail. But there's another use of negative prophecy, and that is to cause people to succeed. It being a self-defeating prophecy, a prophecy given with the intention that it would fail. The prophecy is intended to prevent what it prophesies. And what I said last week is every negative prophecy in the Bible functions first as a self-defeating prophecy. And I said you can see that explicitly in Ezekiel, and the whole book of Jonah teaches that. The whole reason Jonah ended up in the belly of a fish is because he wouldn't go to Nineveh. And it says in the last chapter, the reason was because he knew that if he went into Assyria and told them that God was going to kill him and said nothing about what would happen if they would repent, just, you're going to die in 40 days. They would say, well, let's repent, and God would not do it. He knew that God had given him a self-defeating prophecy. Because all of God's negative prophecies function first as a self-defeating prophecy. And then as other things, when people don't listen to them. But one of the things that's important to recognize is whenever somebody gives— because the question is, when it, you're, you're dealing with a human being who's saying that particularly, how do you know when they're, when they're trying to crush you as opposed to trying to help you? And one of the things I said last week that's, I think, really important is at some point, right when you're about to give up, right when the prophecy's about to become a self-fulfilling prophecy, that same person will step in and say, don't give up. You can do this. This can work. It can happen. Don't stop now, right? And when you get to the end of the middle of chapter 30, that's exactly what God says about the whole Torah, and especially Deuteronomy itself. He says, now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven and get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it, nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your own mouth, in your heart, so that you may obey it. And so, so last week, the big idea was that when God predicts our failure, he's priming us either for success or redemption. And because of bad writing and poor time management, we only got to talk about the first part. Which I still want to recap to make sure I do poor time management this time too. Which, which came down to this. That because following God and trusting Him and believing Him, um, it, that's, that goes against our nature. We're not primed naturally to be faithful. And so we have to know that about ourselves, and we have to take specific action so that we're not unfaithful, so we don't go wherever the wind blows us. We don't, in the words of Paul, simply obey our stomach, right? And in order to do that, it requires at least two things. It requires discipline, 
where we choose to make ourselves do things so that we will become the kind of person we want to be. And two, it requires vigilance, knowing how we will normally fail and being extremely vigilant about watching for those things to try to make sure they don't happen to us. And I said throughout Scripture, you see, you see at least three very specific practices to help us with that. The first is deliberate choice, to know that you're in or you're out. Um, it's one of the reasons why I, I kind of feel like doing a creed at church would not be a bad thing, right? Because every week you confess if you're in or out, right? But you've got to know that. You've got to know— that's one of the reasons why in churches like this one we emphasize personal decisions for Jesus, right? And it's one of the reasons why um, traditions where, where people baptize infants, they have confirmation. Because even if you got baptized as an infant, at some point you're old enough that you have to confirm your baptism and say, no, 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 they did that for me, but I believe it in front of the whole church, right? The second is disciplined remembrance. Um— Think about it this way. The, way. the way most people imagine human life now is that um, we define ourselves as we go. Life is a process of forming our own identity for who we are. It's a way of, it's a way of defining ourselves from ourselves. Um, what if life is actually recovery from amnesia that we've had about ourselves since we were born? That really what life is isn't creating an identity for yourself, but remembering an identity you never knew you had over the course of your life so that you can be what you've always been. That is, live into an identity that's not something you create, but something that you already have. You just don't know what it is. See, the Christian message says the latter is true. That the sinful condition has caused us to forget our divine nature, the image of God in us. And because our condition has caused us to forget it, we don't know who we are. And so we make up new identities because we don't know our identity. But the message of the gospel is to cause us to know our original identity and constantly engage in the process of remembering it because we're programmed to forget it. And the last is careful obedience. And I'm not going to get way, way deep into that again. So you can listen to the last 20 minutes of the last sermon for that one, I guess. So this week, I think it's important for us to get at the second part of that, and that is that when God predicts our failure, which he does all through the Bible in lots of places, it's meant to prime us for redemption. Um, There's—okay, so let's, let's read the Bible. So let's read Deuteronomy 30. Um, I'll tell you the page number when I get there, sorry. So— in Deuteronomy 30, it's, we've already gone by the curses, right? And we haven't quite got to the failure song yet. And God is laying this stuff down. Page 320 in a pew Bible. And this is, this is what he says. Now think about that the first verse of this chapter assumes they've already failed. And they've experienced all the curses that were in the preceding chapter. So this chapter starts with the assumption that the people being talked to are at rock bottom. Okay? So, so get that in terms of the context. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. So the, the emphasis here is on curses because the Lord has dispersed them among the nations as a punishment rather than kept them in the land that he's given them. Right? So even though he says blessings and curses, the assumption is the blessings happen first, then you grow unfaithful, 
Then the curses came. One of the curses is that you're dispersed throughout all the nations of the earth and don't get to rule yourselves. Right? He says, And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you to do today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, and from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring back, he will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. You will again obey the Lord and follow all his commandments I am giving you today. Then the Lord your God will make you more pro- you most prosperous in all the work of your hands and in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous just as he delighted in your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that are written in this book of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You see, one of the things that you have to look at is what comes after the curse? You see, if, if, you're, if you're totally positive with everybody you train, teach, or parent— what are you depriving them of? Right? Any good training set always has, as part of the modules, troubleshooting, right? All good training has troubleshootings. When be- this happens, do this, right? So there's all this kind of like, don't do this so that things will go wrong, and do this so that you'll succeed. But all good training says, listen, if you do this, you're going to fail. When you fail, do this. But you, see, you, but you can never train for failure contingencies unless you accept the possibility of failure. Right? And some people just think that's too negative. And I just think that's really silly. You've got—anybody you train, you've got to train for failure contingencies. What happens when this goes wrong? When I was in, in seminary, um, one of the classes I took was power, conflict, and management. And it was all case studies of terrible things that happen in churches. Right? What happens the morning when you find about a sexual indiscretion with a staff member? What happens when the church decides they hate your wife and constantly attack her? What, hap- what do you do when this happens? What do you do when this happens? What do, you, what do you do? The whole class was that. It's probably the most helpful class at seminary. Not for this church. <laughs> right? But you see, one of the things that has to happen is what happens when you're at the bottom? What happens when you fail? What happens when all the laws that were given to say, if you do this, you will live? Life comes from obeying the way of the Lord. What happens, what's going to happen on the other side of the curses? And you see, unless God says, listen, you're going to fail, you can't have that conversation, right? You have to have that conversation. It is loving to have that conversation. And God has that conversation with us and with his people. He says, when this happens, when you choose to disobey, when I do exactly what I said I was going to do, and you end up spread through all the nations of the earth, 
here's what you can do. Here's what you do when you're at the bottom. Turn back to me. And it can happen for a couple of different ways. In fact, it happened two different ways in the history of the Jewish people, both of which are meant to be incredibly instructive for us. One of which is encapsulated in the story of the Old Testament and one in the story of the New Testament. In the story of the Old Testament, it was, it was irreligion. It was straight idolatry. Um, the Jewish people went to the promised land and instead of following the Lord, they did everything else to try to receive blessing. They worshiped other gods. Even to the point when fin- God finally brought judgment on them, they were practicing child sacrifice just like the Canaanites before them. It was terrible. When, when, if your translation says, causes their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, let me just tell you, the son and daughter didn't get out the other side. It was infanticide. And God judged them because they were idolaters. But in the New Testament, the problem that Jesus critiques over and over and over again with the present Jewish people of that day isn't idolatry, it's self-righteousness. It's not that they had turned away from God to totally other gods to try to get benefits for themselves. It isn't. It's that they stopped turning to God with all their hearts and they began to use the law as a means to attain righteousness rather than as a description of how to live out righteousness. If you already believe in the righteous one and are following him in a relationship with him, the law tells you what you can do and if you do it, it brings life. But it doesn't produce life. It doesn't make righteous. And so you can, you can end up on the bottom for two different reasons. You can, you can end up on the bottom of the barrel. You can end up on the far side of the curses for idolatry, for irreligion, for doing whatever you want, for defining yourself from yourself. God can say whatever he wants, I'll do whatever I want. Or you can find yourself on the other side of the curses because of self-righteousness. Because you've chosen some set of laws that you think that you obey decently well, you feel fantastic about yourself, and you just know God has to bless you because of how good you are. And we have to be constantly vigilant of both of those things. Right? What happens then, though, is you get real and remember. Right? When you're at the bottom, what happens sometimes is you remember, and so you have to have something to remember. Do you remember the prodigal son story in Luke 15, right? The son has spent everything, he's out in a foreign land, and it says, and then he comes to himself, right? He's starving to death, and and then he goes, oh wait, he remembers something. He remembers his father's a pretty good guy, And he remembers his father's servants don't starve because his father is generous. If his father's a good guy and his father's generous, it's possible that something good could happen if he turned back home. Or another kind of humorous example of this is Jonah when he's in the fish. Right? A lot of people think the whole purpose of Jonah being in the fish is so that he could get to Assyria. Jonah, as far as I can tell, Jonah doesn't get one inch closer to Assyria from being in the the belly of the fish. Okay? He still gets spit out in Jerusalem. He still has to travel 600 miles over land to get to Nineveh, right? That's not the point. The point is not that God used it as a shortcut. The point is, is that he has, a, he has what we used to call in the South a come-to-Jesus meeting with God in the belly of the fish. If you read the book of Jonah, chapter 2 is a poetic section, apparently, that Jonah wrote when he had some free time on his hands. And in it— He gets back to this concept of salvation by faith, that God will redeem whoever turns to him, no matter how bad a state they're in, 
right? So he's in the belly of this fish, and he's being slowly digested over a thousand years, to quote Return of the Jedi. And what, what he realizes is that he could not be in a worse situation, right? I mean, come up with a worse situation than that? It's hard to do. And in that, he comes back to this idea that, wait a second, I can still call out to God because God is the sort of God that listens whenever anybody turns back to him. That's what it says in Deuteronomy, right? Whenever you're on the far side of the curses, when you're down as far as you can go, there is one thing that you can do, and that is you can turn back to God. You can turn to him with your heart and with your soul, and you can cry out to him, and he, he will, he'll hear that. And so Jonah's in the belly of the whale, and he writes this nice little poem that I don't even know if he could sing, you know, and he he expresses it to God because he needs God, and God hears him. And then he ends up on the shore, and at some point he puts together that being swallowed by a fish and being 40 days from God's destruction in some ways are quite similar. And if God would listen to him when he cries out, then he darn well better go and be the whale to the Ninevites. There's, there's something important, I think, for us to also recognize from this. And that is, one, one of the controversies about the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, you can read this later on this afternoon if you want. There's this place where the younger son comes back, and he spent everything. He spent essentially half of the family's wealth. And he comes back, and the older brother's having the conversation with the dad, because the older brother's so mad that he's accepted the brother back. And the father says to him, he says, you've always been with me to the older brother. He says, and everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate because your brother was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. Now people talk about whether the younger son got re-inherited to the family and got a new half of what was left, which is what the older brother seemed concerned about, which could have happened. The dad's not dead, right? He re-inherits him, right? Or the father could be saying, Listen, he's used up his part of the family treasure, okay? That's true. Everything I have is yours, but he still came back to us. We still have to love him. We still have to accept him. We still have to bring him in. And so one point that could preach from that is, you know, you still lose everything. You know, when you sin and you go out and you wallow in the curses of God and he does exactly what he said he was going to do and you find yourself on the other side and you decide to turn back to God, he'll accept you. He'll save you. You, you get to go to heaven, not hell. That's wonderful. But, you know, you never, you never reach your potential. You never—and that's a great thing to, to you know, preach to teenagers, right? 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 Except that it's false, isn't it? It's false. It's great to tell teenagers, look, if you have premarital sex, you'll never really recover from that, Right? You know, but you know, God will save you, and you can, you'll have to muddle on, but you know, you're always, there's always going to be this terrible price you're going to pay. And there's some truth to that, but it's also false on the basis of God's heart and relationship to what happens when people turn back. Because when you listen to what he says in this passage about when people turn back to him, it is, I will bless you far beyond anything you experienced before the curses when you were serving me. I mean, just look at the—let's look at the passage again briefly, right? I mean, here's what he says. He says that he, he will gather the most distant outcasts, is the first thing he says, right? He said, the fortunes—he said, then the Lord your God will restore the fortunes you've had, and he will gather you for, again from all the nations where he scattered you, even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens— 
the Lord will gather you. Now, the word banished here is part, in some translations, it actually refers to that being the person. So it's an out, it's not, it's not a banished person in terms of distance, but it's an outcast person in terms of not a very nice specimen. So like in the the English Standard Version, it says, even if you're an outcast socially and you're the farthest away you could possibly be, I will gather you all the way back. Does not matter how far you have been sent, you will be brought all the way back, right? He says you will be more prosperous and more numerous than you were before. He says that he will do something he has not yet promised about the inner life of faith. He says, listen, when you come back, when that day comes, he said, I'm going to do something that I'm just going to call the circumcision of the heart. That is, I am going to do a spiritual action inside of you that will help you love me like you, like you should and like I deserve and like a relationship should go. I'm, I'm going right, to, that, that there's an internal work that he would increase when those people turn back to him from what it originally was. Right? And then he says, all of the, all of the curses that you received, for those, not the people you hate, but the ones who hate you. So it's not like, listen, if you're a Christian and you hate people, God's going to curse them. That's not what it says. That's not what it says. Um, other people's receiving of curses because they hate people who belong to God is not on the basis of anything in relationship to us. If they choose, he says, if they choose to hate and attack you, what I did to you, I will do to them. And then there's another thing that's really important to see in this passage, and that is who the emphasis is on. Because the emphasis actually isn't on the turning backers. It's the emphasis is on the character of the one who gathers and prospers and loves and changes, right? Just look at it. Then the Lord your God will restore you, your fortunes that you've had, and, he, and the Lord your God will gather you, in verse 4. And from the Lord your God, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you into the land. He will make you more prosperous than the nations of your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and soul. The Lord your God will put all these curses on you, on your enemies who hate you and persecute you. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous just as he delighted in your fathers. Do you see the theme there? That's a theme. I mean, he, he didn't have to dictate it that way. But again and again, he restates his own name to say, it's not, a, it's not really that if you're on the other side of the curses and you're as low as you can possibly go, if you turn back really hard and you work at it really well and you obey the whole law really awesome, then in proportion to how hard you work and how deeply you believe, I'll bless you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if faith exists and the heart is turned back to him, he will gather back. He will bless. He will make secure. He will defend. He will prosper. And he will do a work in the heart to make it so we can love him better than we ever had. God does it again. God does it himself. That's really important to recognize. And part of the reason for that is that one of the things that we have to get through our heads is that in, in biblical New Testament 
Jesus-centered, gospel-centered Christian faith, God does all of the heavy lifting. If you are trying to follow God in such a way where you really believe you're gonna, you have to do the heavy lifting of discipline, then you don't understand it yet. Following God and being transformed, even using discipline to grow, is still an effective faith. It's putting your trust in God that he will bring about something and that if you do a certain thing, you're just opening yourself up to a place where God will do the heavy lifting. That's all. But he does all the heavy lifting. And that's the whole point of this. That's the whole point of chapter 30. When he says, listen, you're going to fail. But here's what I want. Here's this. Here's chapter 30. I want you to remember this. One, when all the curses happen to you and you turn back, this is what I'm going to do. And listen, it's not too hard for you. It's not too hard for you to believe and follow him. And it's also not too hard for you to turn back. And the reason neither of those are too hard for you is not because you're so great, but because he did it. I mean, think, think about the verses, right? So these are the verses that comes right after verse 10. It says, now what I'm commanding you today is not too hard for you or beyond your reach. Now, why is that? Why is it not too hard for us? Is that, is that the parent who's finally sick of the fact that your 8 and 10-year-old won't bring their laundry down? And he's like, oh, you should be able to do this. That's not the argument he makes here. The argument he makes is this. He says, it's not, it is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will go up into heaven and, and get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Meaning, it would have been impossible to know this stuff in order to do it. And you would have had to somehow get up into heaven to get this knowledge. And he said, the reason it's not too hard for you is because I just freely gave it to you. It's right. It's right. I just gave it to you. And you say, well, you say, well maybe the knowledge was across the sea, some other set of wisdom that we could, we could go over there and learn it and bring it back in some huge voyage and some great entrepreneurship among us and we could learn all the— And he says, he says no. I, I gave it to you. He says, he says here's, where the, here's, here's where the thing is that you need. It's already in your heart and it's on your tongue because you already heard it. You have absolute access to it because he's revealed it. That's why it's doable. Now, one of the reasons this isn't as obscure a passage as you might think is because it's actually one of the strangest, or not strangest, but one of the quotations in the New Testament that people have the most trouble with, who are Bible commentators, and who read the Bible and pay attention to where things are. So if you have a pew Bible, turn it to 1760. In the book of Romans in the New Testament, um, Paul is making this extended argument. Chapters 1 through 3, everybody stinks, right? Jews and Gentiles. Chapter 3, there's a righteousness from God apart from law that's been made known. That is, apart from obeying the law, there's a different kind of righteousness that we don't earn, we receive through faith that came through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The thing that's great about that is now nobody can boast and be self-righteous because it's a gift. And it can be applied to and for everyone, even for people who are not Jews. And then he says, yes, the Jews have all kinds of advantages because they were the chosen people who carried the law, who had the blessings, and who are the ancestors of Jesus Christ, and who were the first to receive the gospel. But other than that, when it comes to accepting and receiving a righteousness from God that saves us and changes us and makes a new people and transforms who we are in individuals and families and in groups, he said that is absolutely available to everybody. And he gets back to chapter 9, and he starts arguing through this again in relationship to the Jewish people and the Gentiles and all these other people, and how can it be for everybody and all that kind of thing. And he gets to chapter 10, and he's making this argument that the righteousness that's by faith, 
and not by self-righteous works, is for everybody. Okay? And this is how he argues it. Brothers, he's talking about the, to the Christian brothers in Rome now. All the Christians. So he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. So he says, I see that lots of Jewish people have not accepted Jesus. And he said, my passion for the people of my own race, he's saying, is profound. I pray constantly to God that they would be saved, right? So that creates a problem. Why is it that Gentiles are coming and believing in this, and the Jewish people for whom it was originally intended to come through, they themselves have not accepted it in, in very large numbers? This is an issue, right? And this is what he says. He says, For I can testify about them, meaning I know my own people, that they are zealous for God. It's not an issue of how personally and emotionally and culturally zealous they are for God. He says, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Now he's not saying there that they don't know anything. What he's saying is they don't know the key thing. That there's a, there's a mistake that's happened, and so what they think they know in how to follow, know, and be right with God isn't right. They have lots of knowledge. They just don't have the right knowledge. In this case, he says, since they do not know the righteousness that comes from God, that is the righteousness of faith that he's argued for now nine chapters, they sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. See, his argument is, the whole point all along is that the, the law has a certain end. It points to a ultimate sacrifice as spoken of through the whole system of Leviticus onward that would be the sacrifice for all sin, that all the law obeying was really meant to point towards so that salvation could come not by making all of the world Jews— but so that the Jews would carry something that would flower in the Messiah's death and resurrection, and his death and resurrection as a means of receiving rightness with God could go then out to all people. Does that make sense? And so, he said it's important to recognize that. Now, then he goes on and he, he sort of backhandedly quotes well he, well, he first starts with, what's wrong with that view? And he quotes Leviticus 18.5, and he says this. He says, Moses described it, described this way— I'm sorry, Moses described in this way the righteousness that is by the law, meaning what he says is the one that's not based on knowledge. He says, there is a righteousness by the law, meaning I'm going to try to keep the law as best I can, and that will make me righteous, and God will love me, and he'll bless me, and I'll have good relationship—everything will go well for me, and so on. And he says, it's summed up in this verse, in chapter 18, verse 5, where it says, the man who does these things will live by them. Now, that, that translation is a little ambiguous. The man who does these things will live by them. That could mean two things. That could mean the person who does these things does these things, right? To live by something mean, could mean to do it habitually. So the person who does the law does the law all the time. And that's good. That's not what the verse means. What the verse means is, the person who does these things, that is, does everything that's in the law, through that will have life. It will be life to that person. And it's interesting that, you know where this passage is from? It's from the sexual regulations portion, the don't have incest section in, in Leviticus 18. But the specific context is, he says, you're coming out of Egypt and you can't be like them. And you're going to go into Canaan and you certainly can't be like them. So I'm going to tell you what you should be like that's neither one of those. And if you do that, you'll find life. 
That's what he's saying. And what Paul has argued for a number of chapters before this in the book of Romans is, but that only brings death because nobody lives by the law enough. Right? And then he goes on to say, but the righteousness that is by faith says, so you've got to follow the argument here, okay? So there's a, he's talking about all through these chapters, chapters 3 and onward, about a righteousness from God that comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus. When we believe in him through faith, we receive this righteousness. And he, so now he's personifying that righteousness. He says, if that righteousness could talk, here's what it would say, right? And now, do you, you recognize this? Right? Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heavens. That is, and then Paul adds this interpretation. That is, to bring Christ down. Or, who will descend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. So he's, he's quoting this, these verses in Deuteronomy that seem to have no relationship at all to Jesus. Right? But, you see, in Deuteronomy 30, the context is Revelation. It's God supplying through his own resources and by explicitly telling the people how they can be saved. And that they can't do anything for it. So you see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, in order for you to save yourself, you would have had to produce for yourself an adequate sacrifice. That is, you would have had to somehow been able to go up into heaven— Grab the immaterial Son of God by his leg, pull him down here, and get him to be the incarnate Son yourself, which you can't do. And then, after he was sacrificed, you would have essentially had to have been able to dig down with your fingernails to hell and get him down there and bring him back up to resurrect him. And if you could do that, you could save yourself through the law. That if you want to be saved by the law, that you want to do it through your own resources, essentially what you're saying is you are capable of detaining the Son of God into incarnation, perfect life, and sacrificial death, and then yourself to go into hell to take Jesus back from the dead and then get him back ascended up into heaven. And if you can achieve that, you can save yourself through the law because those who live by that will live. He's saying, he's saying, if you could talk to the person of righteousness by faith, that's what he'd say to you. You want to be made right with God. You think you're a good person. You think that you're good enough. You really think that nobody could judge you. You really, you, you really believe that, yeah, you've made some mistakes, but on a whole, things are pretty good. You, you really think that. He's like, that's crazy. That's not how God talks at all. And if you want to believe that as your self-made religion, that's fine. But he's like, if you think that you're agreeing with anything God has ever said in the Bible, because in the early parts of the Bible, there's a moral law, and so if you're moral, then you can make it. He's like, that's not going to work. Because you can go back to Deuteronomy 30, and God makes really clear in that, those verses that that is, that is not how this works. He supplies righteousness to those who believe. Right? Now he's still personifying the righteousness by faith. He says, so then what does it, the righteousness is by faith, who apparently is gender ambiguous, right, say? Right, this is the rest of the verse, right? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. Meaning, what you need is right there. It's right there. It, you, you already know it. It's right there on your tongue. And he says, that's exactly what we're saying. 
That's the word of faith we are proclaiming, meaning we Christians. He says, as a, as a preacher of Christ, that's exactly what I'm saying. And that's why I can say this, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You see how that works? He's saying, God has already provided the revelation for what it takes. It's already in there. You know it in your inner psychology. It's, it's been proclaimed to you, and it's right there on your tongue. And he says, all that has to happen for you to turn back to God, to go from the far side of the curses to the blessing beyond what was even promised before. And he says, is you've got to take that thing that's in your heart, and you've got to say it out there with your mouth. It's just got to happen. It's already there. God has already put it there. You already, in a sense, know it. And he says, all that has to happen to receive the righteousness that is by faith is you've got to believe in your heart. You have to say yes. Remember deliberate decision from an hour previous? Right? Deliberate decision and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. Then he goes on to say, for it's with your heart that you believe and are justified that is made right with God and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Then he says, that, and he goes, then it basically says, now just in case you don't think I've quoted enough Old Testament Bible, right? And just in case you still think that the gospel is only for Jews, he says this. He says, for as the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jews and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And see, he quotes Isaiah 28. That's an Old Testament prophet. And Joel 2, 3, that's a different Old Testament prophet. He says, you see, it's all through the Old Testament. It's right there. There's, you know it. It's right there. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. God is, God is, he's brought it down from heaven in the incarnation of Jesus. He's raised Jesus from the dead. He's done all of these things. The Lord your God will bring you back. The Lord your God will make you prosperous. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart. The Lord your God will do all these things. It's right there in your heart and in your mouth. Just believe it. Just confess it. And the righteousness that is by faith, justification is yours. You see the argument? That's the gospel. The good news is that the news is news, not advice. And everything that we do, and we do a lot, flows out of that, right? Ephesians 2 says it this way. He says, it's not by good works you are saved, but when you're saved by Jesus, you become his workmanship. He makes you into something that does the things he wants. He doesn't just command you, unable to do them, do these things and then I'll accept you. No, he accepts you. Then he circumcises the heart. He makes you his workmanship so that you can naturally do from the inside out, what he's called you to do. But only after we embrace the it that is the righteousness that is by faith. <clears throat> I, have a, I have a strong conviction that good parents aren't interested in trying to make the universe relative to their children. Their chil just, they, they just let their children be whoever they want, and then they try to sculpt reality to fit that. I believe that good parenting prepares children to respond to the world that is. So that they, so when I think of Rachel, my daughter, I want to parent my daughter at eight so that she can succeed as a human and a daughter of God at 20 and at 35 and for the rest of her life. That's what I'm trying to do. I want her to know how to succeed and therefore, I want her to know what her human weaknesses are. I want her to understand the human condition 
And I want her to be disciplined and vigilant so she can avoid becoming fragile. And I want everything in Scripture and in her experience in my household to help her walk in brave faith and trust in God in all things. And I want her to be primed for success in following the Savior in the righteousness that is by faith. And I want her to know where to go when things have gone terribly wrong. I want her to know how to come back home. I want her to know that the day she wakes up and she hates what she's become— Either it's because she's become this self-righteous Christian that finds everything wrong with everybody else and has no soft in heart, or because she's just gone astray and she finally comes to herself. I want her to know how to return. And it is not first to call daddy. It is first to call her greater father and greater shepherd, Jesus. I want her to know what is to be done on the far side of the curse. And I also want her to know that I want, it be, I want it to be burned in her mind Almost like a trauma would burn it in there So clear And I want her to know It not just for herself but so that Every person she ever meets She is a signpost for it I want her to be a guide A shepherd to everybody she meets I want her to be a shepherd Fathered by a shepherd Who trusts a greater shepherd After all, that's why we named her that. Rachel Claire means shepherd of light. And it's not just what what Alex and I want for her. We, we, We name our children on the basis of our own deepest values and our greatest faith. We all, we were all meant to be redeemed people, pointing others to the God that saves by faith and faith only. You can try, you can try to reach up and pull salvation down from heaven, but you're gonna fail. And you can try to punish yourself and dig with your fingernails all the way down to hell to redeem yourself and punish yourself. And you will fail. You cannot bring Christ down and you cannot raise him up. God's salvation doesn't come that way. God's salvation comes from him. And he puts it in your heart and on your mouth so that you can believe it in your heart and confess it with your mouth and be saved. And he says about that so that there would be no question Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is the end of the law, the source of salvation, happiness, holiness, and identity. And we were all meant to be redeemed by it and point others to it. Let's pray. Father, um, in some sense, we could look at this as an obscure text and an obscure text and an academic referencing of the two, but I believe what you meant it to be was, was for us to see the gospel on every page of the Bible. All through Scripture, in every place, even in the place that seems to say the most, I gave you a law, now obey it, and then you'll be okay with me. The place most likely for us to take the false notion that we can earn our righteousness, that our standing with you is on the basis of our behavior, And if we're good, then you'll love us. Father, would you help us see even in that place that the righteousness that is by faith is most plainly declared. And it was that verse that the apostle came to when he most wanted to show the difference between trying to earn our righteousness and receive it. Would you help us see, Father, how that changes everything else so that through the justification by faith, we become your workmanship and you will make us the people that we need to be. I pray right now that you'd help 
all of us to be able to confess with our tongue and believe in our heart that you're Lord and revel in our salvation or receive it. I pray that your prediction of failure would have primed us for redemption. And if it doesn't happen today for everybody, I pray that your prediction of failure and what you've said in the scripture would prime them for some future moment when maybe they're on the far side of something else that they would know where to turn. We pray in his name. Amen.